Hello everyone, and welcome to the Quorum Podcast. This is where academic medicine meets remote, austere, and resource-limited areas. Welcome back to the program. This is Averbo Kelly. This week, we will discuss our first full year of podcasting. This is our 71st published podcast. We have been consistent with dropping them each Friday at 11 a.m. Malta time. It's been a steep learning curve for me as we developed our niche within the podcast community. For the past 52 podcasts of this year, we've had many excellent guests on the show. A couple of my favorites were talking to Dame Claire Birchinger, who started the Diploma Tropical Nursing Program in London School of Hygiene. And earlier this month, I flew up to London to attend her retirement event. Another favorite of mine is talking to Dr. Frederick Granholm about ultrasound on his hems in Sweden. And I am looking forward to seeing him at his conference in, in October. And for those of you who consistently listen to our podcast, you, you see that I do have a bit of a bias when it comes to ultrasound. Not only do we have two distinct episodes focusing on ultrasound, I managed to bring it in for a discussion on pretty much everything we talk about. In 2023, we had over 10,000 downloads of our podcast, as about 160 on average per episode, and slowly increasing. We have gained 570 followers in 2023. The top countries are US, UK, Canada, Norway, Australia, Ireland, and Sweden. Today, I'm going to give highlights of our top five podcasts of 2023. Coming in at number five, Dr. Tom Mallinson and myself talked about the prolonged field care for EMS research that we did. Here's a snippet. So we have published a article that that drops last August in the Journal of Paramedic Practice. And Tom and I wrote on that about prolonged field care and how it applies to the civilian ambulance setting. And this was all Tom's idea. Tom, where did you get this idea of research? So I think, so uh, as loads of listeners will know, prolonged field care has been knocking around in the military and tactical world for ages. And, and, and for very obvious reasons. And then I realized that in, on the civilian side, with one of my other jobs, I was talking to some of the remote and rural GPs, and they were talking about we, we need a kit bag that, that is set up and, and contains the guidelines for managing a patient for 48 hours, 72 hours. If, if we're not going to get a helicopter for that amount of time, we need to continue providing care. And especially in Scotland, some of the rural islands are quite small. There's limited resources, so it's a limited resource setting. And, and obviously critical illness doesn't respect geography. So, so people still get sick on very small islands. And I realized that they would, all they were asking for was, we need a prolonged field care kit bag and we need prolonged field care guidelines because standard NHS guidelines assume that you can wheel the patient up to HDU, to a critical care unit. They assume that you can phone down the anesthetist to, to start the inotropes for you. But if you're the only clinician and you're on an island, and you've only got limited medications and limited equipment, suddenly none of those standard guidelines really apply. So, so I guess that was one side. And then the other side was um, talking to UK student paramedics who are getting fed up of, 
of waiting outside hospitals to offload patients to hospital. So they might be spending a whole shift on an ambulance, but see one patient. And, and quite rightly, their concern was that their education was limited because they were meant to be learning to be a paramedic, but maybe saw one patient in eight hours. And, and I'm not arguing that that is appropriate or that, or that they should be waiting outside hospital for eight hours. But I, I saw that gap, that, that potential gap in care where they've provided excellent paramedic care. They've, they've provided the primary survey. They've provided the secondary survey. They've provided immediate life, life threat treatments. Um, and then they're sitting with a patient for eight hours. And they haven't really had any training in looking after a patient for eight hours because traditionally that's not civilian paramedic practice. So, so that was the connection to the, the prolonged field care work we're doing in the college. And I thought, oh, the, most of prolonged field care is just a mindset. It's a, it's a change of how you look at caring for your patient. So that's why Abraham and myself came together and, and we thought, oh, we'll, we'll just outline what prolonged field care is we will put the argument out there that this should be part of the, of civilian paramedic education, whether because you're waiting outside a, a hospital for eight hours or if it takes you three hours or four hours to get to a hospital. Um, you should you should probably be aware of the concept of prolonged field care and and the core tenets. So that's what led us to 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 basically present that in the Journal of Paramedic Practice and to say this is a this is a model, this is a framework of conceptualizing that care during that period. And I really just wanted to put it out there for, for critique and for feedback and to, to get people thinking about it. So I think, you know, there's, there's plenty of things conceptually within prolonged field care which require no additional equipment. There's, there's no additional money that your employer needs to spend. This is purely an upskilling yourself as a practitioner. I think there is the sub-question of what could your employer do to facilitate that prolonged field care. Um, and I think and I hope that our journal, our article in the Journal of Paranormal Practice has raised these points to get you thinking, I've done my primary survey, my secondary survey, what comes next? What can I do next for this patient? So I, I would say to you, have a read of the article, have a consideration of a nursing care plan for a typical patient. Clearly, it will be uh, individualized, but every patient, um, well, very hopefully every patient you have is breathing. Hopefully, uh, the majority of them have their limbs, so they have the risk of those DVTs. You know, the, there are a number of in, uh, interventions that the majority of your patients will be needing in terms of prolonged field care. So I guess my, my coming up to the closing, my question is, is this something that we as, as paramedics and pre-hospital care providers, do we need this in the bedrock of our education? Do we need to change from uh, our role as primary and secondary survey and the interventions associated with those? Do we need to reframe ourselves as a professional group and think our care for the patient is primary survey, secondary survey, and prolonged field care for as long as it takes until we deliver this patient to the next appropriate level of care? I don't think that's a big stretch. I, I think in many undergraduate programs, there is room to incorporate this. There's room to incorporate that little bit of, of uh, longer patient care. Um, and I would, I would challenge you to think about 
the appropriateness of that in in relation to education near you uh, that you're delivering or that you're part of. Um, and I think that would be my question to you. So th that is definitely a, a point that we need to have paramedics on all sides of the, of the planet to think about, to incorporate if possible. Uh, there are tons of, of curriculum that's already writ. Dr. Sean Keenan has the Austrian Emergency Care, which we're all faculty of, that addresses this issue at the civilian level. The Prolonged Field Care Working Group at pfcare.org is going to be a good place for free 6.5 gigabytes of data that you can download with one click. And if for those of you who want to incorporate this into your academic practice, then start having a conversation. Talk with your program leads, talk with other, other paramedics and see if there is a need for this. And if there is, find a way to learn prolonged care. And I guess as a, as a very small plug, but more as a, as a networking, we, we on our bachelor's program certainly cover prolonged field care in year one, year two, and year three. We revisit it in the same way that you'd revisit the primary survey. So if, if you are an educational provider at any level, and you're thinking, how do I how do I build that into my curriculum? Um, feel free to reach out to us, and we can share what we're doing. We're, we're not saying we're doing the only way or the best way of teaching prolonged field care, but certainly the college has been doing it for a number of years now, and we we'd welcome any conversation with people who are looking at uh, providing prolonged field care education, pr uh, thinking about improving it, changing it, how to adapt it or integrate it into their curriculum. Um, we're we're always on board for those kind of conversations. So at the end of the day, you need to be better. You need to be a, a better person for your, for, for your, a better medic for your casualty. And at the end of the day, you're the only thing standing between death and your casualty. So be better, learn these skills and go out and make the community around you a better place. Next up at number four is Tim Cranton talking about his life as an offshore medic and discusses what it takes to earn your offshore medics rating and get a job. We are most definitely now looking at um, enhancing the role, enhancing its recognition. In fact, um, you know, I'm, like I said, I'm doing this MER today and we don't call ourselves medics anymore. We're healthcare professionals. And I think if mm. you were able to come into this, this job, especially with, uh, with our BSC, um, that's definitely going to put you in, in, in much better standing than arguably coming from a non-qualified background. And that's one of the difficult things for a lot of, lot of people that would be suited for this role, especially kind of ex-military guys. Unfortunately, they're coming out of the military, but they don't have a civilian version of the job they've probably been doing for a long time. So enabled mm. to, to quantify all of that experience, actually having something like uh, like our BSC um, is going to put them in much better standing for, for that job. And again, our, our BSC is quite diverse. So it's not necessarily about finding that oil and gas job on a, on a, on a rig. It could be a remote mine site. It could be um, working for National Geographic or the History Channel. Um, doing doing a movie, it could be working on tall ships um, that are that are doing you know sailing around the world. I know we've got some of our graduates have, have done those things. Um, mm -hmm. So you know it, it opens up a lot of 
other things other than just working, you know, the possibility of working offshore. There's There are other options too. And, you know, tropical medicine, if you're going to be going to uh, Papua New Guinea. Uh, again, I, I know one of our, uh, I say our graduates, or what we're current students saying, uh, has managed to do things like that, going to Africa as well. So uh, having that experience, I think also mm. that a three-year program gives you, because we do clinical placements as well. Uh, and having that on a resume, uh, and that's already experience of working at a remote or certainly resource poor location um, that, that's valid. That's experience too. If you've just come from a university classroom um, or, you know, kind of like one of these short course classrooms, it doesn't give you the practical experience. And that's what most employers are looking for. They want the, the post qualification um, clinical experience so that they know not they're not just getting somebody who's maybe got the head knowledge but also somebody who's got the practical skills and experience and I think that's really imp- uh, important to gain as well so you're in place uh, now that's your your rotation and in, in, in the near future tell us about an emergency event a medical event how do you uh, ass- how do you manage the patients and, and do you bring them back to your clinic or do you manage there or, or how, how does a medical emergency work on your platform so again if i kind of refer back to my to my emergency plan that's one of the things i'm writing about this moment in time so we actually have what we what we call a tiered um level of response um so tier one would be um somebody who's come across an incident let's say out on the plant so uh, that would be our first responder um, or should I say tier zero, sorry. So tier zero is the immediate response. So a person finds the casualty, so an injured or ill person. Um, they'll only approach, obviously, if it's safe. If they can, they'll make the area safe. But primarily their their role is uh, alerting um, to the incident and activating some kind of uh, a- a- alarm. So they, they would get help by shouting a manual alarm, call points, or one of those smash glass push button. Uh, we have telephones as well. Everybody kind of carries radios. So they would call that into the, uh, the control room. So we have a central control room. And then the control room operator would decide whether to initiate um, a full platform general alarm um, or they may tannoy um, and sedate that there is a medical emergency and request uh, a designated first aider, which would be our our second level of response, so tier one, which would be in less than four minutes. So we have immediate, then in less than four minutes, a designated first aider is expected to mobilize to the location with a grab bag and a defibrillator. That would be a standard for every response. Um, And if necessary, they may then bring the patient to the medic who would be on standby in the sick bay, or they would determine whether a level two response or a tier two response is required, and that would be the medic themselves. So in less than 10 minutes, uh, there would be a tier two response, and that may mean that for likes of myself, I may be required to, uh, to go to the incident scene, assess the patient or have the patient handed over to me by the first responder, and then continue the medical care and evacuation from there. Most likely, after stabilization on scene, uh, we would utilize our emergency response team, so that's our kind of fire and rescue team that we have on board, 
they would assist moving the patient from the incident scene to the sick bay where further stabilization would continue. So we're, by that stage, we'll have done our ruck uh, truck. So ruck being the, the medic responding with a rucksack, the truck is going to be our uh, uh, emergency team with by stretcher moving the patient to the sick bay. And then we're going to be in house phase until such time that we uh, that we're able to move the patient. And really, that's going to be dependent upon the weather uh, and access to us uh, by the Coast Guard uh, and a helicopter. And as I say, we would then hold the, the person in the sick bay for however long is needed and provide them with the level of care that is that is needed to be able to uh, stabilize them and then provide them with uh, with prolonged care. Uh, until such time as we can uh, get them plain and uh, into definitive care. So that's kind of how we would respond. Um, tier tier three um, is where we would have a multiple casualty type incident, in which case um, that would be something the medic would, would initiate, would be uh, a multiple casualty incident. And then at all times, we're feeding information back to our control room and or the installation manager. And ultimately, it's the installation manager that will uh, initiate response by the Coast Guard. But also, we have our topside medical provider. So again, when I get into the, the sick bay with my patient, I would actually make contact with uh, the virtual health service that we have. So that we commonly refer to them as topside. Uh, I'll talk to the duty doctor. He will then in turn contact the Coast Guard and between the Coast Guard and the installation manager, they'll authorize uh, search and rescue to come and pick the patient up. It might not need that. It might be that we could have a non-urgent medevac uh, and we are able to send someone in, uh, let's say, on a routine crew change flight. Most days uh, on my last installation, we were flying, so it wasn't too much of an issue. We could pretty much get someone home from Monday to Friday uh, who was you know, a low-level uh, patient, and we could get them into the care of their own GP or to Aberdeen Royal Infirmary that way. But uh, I think this is going to be a little bit different. We're only going to have two, three flights a week where we're going to be. Uh, so access to the patient is uh, is going to be interesting for helicopters. And that pretty much covers a response. On a day-to-day -day basis, it'll be, you know, people will knock on your door. We'll have an uh, open clinic from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. as the usual working hours. Obviously, we're on call, so we could we could go out any hours after that or receive a patient, say, from the night shift. Um, but we'll have our general health care health service, the clinic-based uh, facilities available 24 hours a day, uh, and then deal with patients as they, as they come in the door. Next up on number three is my talk with the Ukraine Aeromedical Evac Team from Norway. Well, these guys are the ones that are going to the border of, of Ukraine, picking up casualties and then flying them throughout Europe, putting them into different hospitals who are taking casualties. Yeah, the, uh, the platform we have is, uh, uh, yeah, the platform we are doing the medevac uh, from Poland with the Ukraine's uh, soldiers are a Boeing 737 civilian aircraft who is uh, built as a big air ambulance uh, aircraft. Uh, why Norway is doing this? Uh, it's because it's, um, I think it's uh, 
uh, agreement to uh, EU, uh, the Norwegian uh, Ministry of Health have uh, done. And uh, yeah, we're flying patients all over Europe uh, every week for for um, for ARCS, uh, actually. Yeah. And and what's your medical training? Uh, well, 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 a nurse, paramedic, yeah, doctor. Well, yeah. The medical uh, med- crew is uh, doctors, uh, special nurses, uh, and paramedics. So in each flight, you have anesthetic doctors, and you have nurses, and you have paramedics on all of them. Yeah. Every team, it's about uh, eight persons. It's a medical crew director. It's uh, two doctors. Uh, it's... Uh, uh, intensive care nurses, anesthetic nurses, and paramedics on every mission. And how many casualties can you have on your 737? We can have 20 stretcher and wow. 30 uh, sitting patients. Uh, and three of the lie-down patients are ICU patients. And have you filled it? Have you had all of those positions filled on, on a mission? Uh, almost. I think wow. we have eight in, eight in uh, stretcher and uh, 25 sitting patients on 18 stretchers. Yeah. So you have that many casualties and you have eight medics, doctors and nurses. That's yeah. a mass cash. That's yeah. a mass casualty. That's a, a normal team. So every time we have more patients and eight, nine person can do, then we add more doctors and uh, nurses to the plane. Um, so tell me about, about some of your recent missions on on your platform? So we are flying basically every week, one or two uh, days. Um, Most of the patients are either gunshot wound uh, patients or blast injuries. Some of them have combined uh, burn injuries. And we also fly some uh, medical uh, patients, uh, mainly advanced cancer patients. So, we experience that uh, the Ukrainian healthcare system are doing a great job here. Uh, they are obviously overloaded and are treating the patients uh, in the same standards that the uh, rest of Europe does and the US. So we are um, very admired about helping them out to take the particular patients out to further treatment in, in uh, Europe. Uh, and basically that is uh, to help the healthcare systems uh, deal with the overload, not not uh, particularly the treatment, because they can perfectly do the treatment themselves. And where are you taking? What countries are, are receiving these casualties? So we're flying to uh, Germany, which, ta- which takes a, a huge uh, amount of the patients. We fly to Belgium, France, Denmark, Hungary, Finland, hmm. uh, Netherlands. Uh, and Croatia we've been to also, and usually we bring also patients back to Norway every week. Next up is the second highest downloaded podcast from 2023. This is the Tropical Medicine Update with Jason Jarvis and myself, where we talked about some of the emerging diseases that are showing up in places that they haven't been in ages, such as tropical diseases in in Florida, in Texas, and, and in France. Every war, you lost more people from infectious disease than you ever did from conflict. And, and hand-washing antibiotics stopped that in its tracks. 
But we still have problems. I, I, I talked a bit about eastern Ukraine right now where we're starting to see that resurgence because of tuberculosis and HIV coming in along with the invaders. That's why I am interested in infectious disease and in tropical medicine. It, it encompasses absolutely everything from, from this conflict medicine we see in eastern Ukraine all the way to what we're, we're seeing in KCMC and Moshi. In, or even malaria spreading in southern France and Florida and Texas. But due to global warming, we're seeing mosquito-transmitted diseases in places that didn't used to be. Yeah, the global warming certainly is going to you know, increase the ranges of some of the diseases that used to be tropical. Now they're, now they're subtropical or they're getting into the temperate areas, which are you know, becoming warmer. Um, you know, the other thing is... Uh, a couple of other things. One is antimicrobial resistance is a huge issue. Um, and, and the other one, which is probably even more impactful lately, is global travel, right? So you've got, like I was mentioning earlier, you've got a, you've got a malaria-naive person traveling to Africa because they want to do their safari because it was on their bucket list, and they come home with malaria, right? So you've got returning travelers bringing back diseases, which, which may, uh, you know, they may be transmissible or not to the local population, depending on what it is. Uh, something like malaria is not normally going to be very transmissible. If you bring it back to Europe or the U.S., uh, it can happen, but it's pretty rare. Uh, versus something like uh, Ebola, which is highly transmissible no matter where you bring it in the world. Uh, that's just a contact transmitted disease that can spread uh, very easily if you let it go. Uh, so you have, yeah, you have these returning travelers, uh, people going into the tropics that uh, normally, you know, 500 years ago, your average European wasn't going to the tropics unless they were, you know, a, uh, you know, they, there was, they were part of the commerce of that area or they were an explorer or something like that. But now you've got thousands of people getting into these places uh, and potentially getting sick there or, not getting sick until they come home, and they may or may not uh, transmit that disease once they get home. It only takes a strain of Ebola to not kill as quickly as it normally does and keeps the guy alive long enough so he can get back home to St. Louis, and then he becomes infective and causes a global widespread zombie apocalypse. So we've been lucky so far. And finally, our most listened to podcast with 431 downloads in 2023 is the talk I had with David Pfeiffer about his push not only for a bachelor's degree paramedic program in the States, but a master's level paramedic practitioner that would be equal to a nurse practitioner or a physician's assistant. Yeah. So you've been on the cutting edge of pushing for the bachelor's degree paramedic, and you have an uphill battle in front of you just to talk about the the bachelor's level paramedic yeah. and it's gaining traction and fair play to you for that. But now you just threw another hand grenade <laughs> on, on that landmine <laughs> and you're pushing for a master's degree paramedic practitioner. Uh, correct. <laughs> so let's talk about that for a bit. What for someone who's never heard of this, what, what is your idea? What is your goal and what do you want this paramedic practitioner to do. Okay. So, so basically here in the U S um, in, in, in with very, very, very few exceptions, uh, 
uh, EMS is only reimbursed uh, for loaded mileage. Um, once you get the patient in the back of the ambulance and you depart the scene, um, you're paid for um, uh, the miles uh, based on, you know, a certain formula. But but for, by and large, there's kind of a list of, uh, you know, I don't know, 10 or so uh, roles that the federal government basically says, uh, here, here's kind of what being a practitioner really means. The federal government says these roles can submit bills for reimbursement as individual healthcare uh, providers. Um, so David Pfeiffer, physician assistant, can submit a bill and get reimbursed as David Pfeiffer, basically, um, for the uh, care that he provides. And you can bill based on these different procedural codes. Then you have uh, kind of in another uh, avenue, I guess, you have uh, practitioners. So there's you know, capital P, lowercase p practitioner, right? Um, many people yeah. think of themselves as practitioners and would refer to themselves as practitioners. Um, but as far as kind of the federal government is concerned, uh, capital P practitioner is a, a pretty specific list of healthcare providers um, that as it, as it happens, um, at, basically all have master's degrees. So uh, that list ex- includes, for example, uh, physician assistants, uh, nurse practitioners. Uh, here, here's kind of what being a practitioner really means. The federal government says these roles can submit bills for reimbursement as individual healthcare uh, providers. Um, so David Pfeiffer, physician assistant, can submit a bill and get reimbursed as David Pfeiffer. What this is really about, first and foremost, is better care that is more cost-effective and more efficient for patients. It, patient-centered care has to be at the that needs to be the focus of everything that we do right in healthcare. So, Mm. so idea number one behind paramedic practitioners is, is, is doing that is providing better care, right? Idea number two is, uh, with that premise, I, I hope everybody agrees kind of with that premise that we should be doing the best that we can for patients. Right. Um, agreed. Let's make that financially sustainable. Blood products, you, you you got the third rail to be passed in Kentucky. So how is that? What, so first off, what blood products are you allowed to give? And then how is well, that conversation? Well, it's uh, as of this recording, it's not quite done yet. So in here in Kentucky, uh, first it has to be approved by the Medical Oversight Committee of the Board of EMS. Then it has to be approved by the Board of EMS. Then it goes to a body called the Legislative Research Commission, which is, um, you know, a state agency that basically vets, validates uh, any um, public regulations or laws. They do a cost analysis. They make sure that it's, you know, uh, consistent with existing laws and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So um, for most EMS regulations, it's mostly a formality, but, but nevertheless, it still has to pass that hurdle. So it's not quite a done deal yet, but, you know, we would like to think that we have um, gotten uh, all the buy-in that we should have gotten and been inclusive in the deliberations and everything up to this point, uh, and that it will be smooth sailing. So we do anticipate that it will be approved. Um, 
I, you know, I think the goal, right, is basically whole blood. Um, mm. And what we would be probably trying to do with that would be, for example, um, there are uh, in, in, in the area where I operate, the Red River Gorge, um, it is, <clears throat> it's austere, but it's not necessarily remote. Um, in fact, I would argue it's not remote, um, <clears throat> you know, especially with hoist insertion capability. Now in Kentucky, um, we can put a paramedic anywhere, you know, in the gorge uh, with, uh, you know, re- a relatively short, short order. Um, but it can take a long time to get people out of that environment because of the technical extraction challenges. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've actually had, for example, um, two or three calls uh, recently, like over the past like two or three years, um, where uh, there was entrapment. So patients, for example, who were pinned under falling trees. Um, we had one a few years ago uh, during the formation of Red Star. is actually one of the catalysts for, for, for building the team. Um, a, a, uh, somebody fell off of uh, a, a rock, like a prominence, you know, fell like 30 feet. Um, and w- the way that they landed, their legs got wedged between two other boulders. Um, and the initial report was that, you know, they were basically, you know, down to their hip wedged between these two rocks. Um, couldn't get that leg out. So we've had a few of these things that were like entrapments. And we also thought that there might even be a field amputation need. Um, we actually had one of those very recently where we deployed a physician into the field because we thought that we were going to have to cut a guy's leg off. So there are situations like that where, you know, blood products, you know, could make a big difference. Um, other situations where a patient, you know, suffered really serious traumatic injuries, they definitely have uh, internal hemorrhage occurring. Um, and it's just going to take uh, kind of a long time um, to, uh, or long enough to do a, a rope rescue operation to get them out of the spot that they're in, um, just because of the nature of the terrain. So, you know, I've, I've had patients uh, that we've pulled out of 30 foot crevices, um, you know, and it's almost like a crevasse rescue, but you're talking sandstone instead of a glacier. Um, and wow. they're down in a crack, you know. Um, so we're down there with them uh, for, you know, uh, 45 minutes, an hour, uh, while we get things rigged up and pull them up. I think those are situations where it's actually very realistic for us to take refrigerated blood into the woods. It's not that it's a lengthy access to the patient. It's that it's a lengthy extraction of the patient. Um, hmm. So that's that's the kind of thing we're envisioning. So you would carry a couple units of fresh old blood in, and then if if you don't use it, you, you, you can bring it back and Exactly. Still make the twenty-one day limit of yeah. getting it used. Any other exactly. products like fresh frozen plasma or just whole blood? Uh, well, we're yeah, we're considering. I think um, some of those other products as well. But I guess you know, sort of the uh, gold standard, if you will, you know, would be the whole blood. So there you have it. These are the five top downloaded episodes from 2023. We look forward to 2024 and our show will continue next week. We will be back on Friday with another fantastic interview. This has been a presentation from the College of Remote and Offshore Medicine. If you would like to earn CT credits for this podcast, you can join the Council of Members. Being a member of the college gives you free CPD credit, free access to our virtual field guide, and discounts on our e-learning courses. You can join the team on our college website at quorum.edu.mt.